episode of the Better Two Podcast is brought to you by Kitty Mystic and DM Needham, author of My Days with the Dark Muse, as well as Love is Worth Waiting For. Hi, gang. Donna here. Thanks for tuning in to the Better Two Podcast. Today's guest is Scott Harris. Scott has a book called Leap Forward Over Any Obstacle. And Scott takes us on a pretty incredible journey because, well, he decided to, that he wanted to fly. And, well, he badgered his parents at the age of 12 to let him take flight lessons. And that's just the beginning of our story. So stay tuned. Hi, Scott. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I, I can tell that. I mean, I already know this about you because, of course, I have your bio. And the reason for the airfield behind you is you're a skydiver. I am a skydiver and a pilot. I spent a lot of time in the air. So this is kind of like an image of your home away from home then. Kind of. This is actually a a runway in Mali. I have flown there. Nice. Nice. So what made you decide to become a pilot? I started learning to fly when I was 12 years old. I, when I was a kid, I wanted to fly more than I wanted to breathe. And I badgered my parents to have them send me uh, to a school that had a flying club. I couldn't finish because I was too young to solo or get a license, but I logged about 12 hours of flight instruction. And then I had to wait. I was good enough to solo, but I wasn't, I was too young. And I picked it back up when I got out of the army while I was in college. Okay. Did you, when you were in the army, did you do any, anything in particular that would help with that? Well, while, while I was in the army, I was an aircraft mechanic and I took up skydiving as a hobby. Okay. So what's it like to be a skydiver? I mean, that has to be the first time you did it. Were you, were you scared or you just took a flying leap? Because I know that kind of is your mantra, but were you scared the first time? Oh yeah. It, yeah. It scared me. The first time I did it, it scared me. And I, I can't have that. <laughs> so I, uh, immediately, you know, kept doing it and I got over being scared and really fell in love with it right away. And so, it's become a lifetime obsession kind of. What's it like to be up there in the clouds? It's a great feeling of freedom and it's a great release. And many of the important lessons that I have learned that have made my whole life possible, I learned from skydiving. I learned to focus my attention in, you know, very much in the here and now at will. And that has allowed me to accomplish many of the things that I have done because I can really, you know, when you leave the door of an airplane, you're really not thinking about your bills or your girlfriend or, you know, none of your troubles, they don't exist. You're, uh, you know, it's when you do anything like that, that you focus on so hard, you you're only thinking about what's going on right now. You're living in the moment. And if you do that enough, you can learn to, you know, to focus like that on anything. At will, you know, if you have a problem at work, if you focus 100% of your attention on it and you're not distracted by other things like your Cat. cats and <laughs> things Sorry. like that, but other things going on, if you can really focus, you can, you can accomplish great things. 
Agreed. Agreed. Sorry about the cat. She does that. No, it's okay. I have cats. Um, and, and that's the thing. I think sometimes we get so wrapped up, and I mean, I'm guilty of it as well. We get so we get so wrapped up in the what if, and the worry of what if this doesn't go exactly how I want it to, that we don't enjoy the present moment. We don't enjoy the journey of going to where we want to go. Yeah, that's and it is. That's one of the things that little. Most, for most people, you can be your own, you know, worst enemy. You can, if you, if you're, if you're not thinking about, you know, if you're thinking about what can go wrong and how to deal with what goes wrong and all that, you're really not focusing all your attention on what you're trying to do. And it's not only is it, you know, it makes you unhappy to think about all that negativity, but it interferes with your, your performance and you can't operate at your best level. If you can, if you can really focus all your attention on what you're doing and what you you know, forward movement, then not only is it allowing you to operate at your best level, but it brings great joy. It's joyful to be doing anything. Well, if you put every, you know, if you're doing anything to the very best of your ability, it's joyful. Right. Well, and that's, I, I'm reading a book uh, called the miracle of believing. I happen to find it because I'm going through my books and everything. I don't know if I got it from my mother-in-law or, or my tarot teacher. But the interesting thing is the guy who wrote it was born in 1891. And he died in 1951. And he says in there that when you're born, you're, you're, the only fear you have is falling. And whether somebody's going to pick you up. That's about it. That's the only fears you have. But our life and our experiences in life per- perpetrate or perpetuate the constant fears that we we place on ourselves, the things that hold us back because of other experiences that we've had in our life. And it, it gives you food for thought because really that's the truth, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, for most fear is a learned uh, response. And, you know, the fear of falling or, or you know, uh, I, I think the fear of fire is kind of kind of pretty well uh, hardwired into us, but anything like that, you know, is something that you, if you have to face it, you have to overcome it, but also you, you develop fears for, you know, being in open spaces or fear of speaking in front of other, you know, groups of people. That's not natural. It's just something that, you know, that happens to people after being, isolated you get fearful about standing up in front of people because you don't do it very much and everybody's looking at you and you know and 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 it makes you very self-conscious but if you you know if you have no experience with any of that you just do it and it wouldn't mean anything you know uh but if you could overcome these learned fears or learn to not be afraid of fear um, and honestly, that's kind of that's where I fall in. It's not that I have no fear of, you know, getting hurt skydiving or flying airplanes upside down or any of the crazy things that I do. Trust me, I I've I've ridden horses that I I have a certain fear for because um, they're nuts. But uh, I kind of run towards that. I mean, like it, it's kind of like firemen who run, you know, they run into burning buildings buildings and they thrive on that energy. Uh, it's, you know, they, because they've learned that when they run, you know, when they, when they move towards something like that, 
overcoming that fear and, you know, rising to that challenge brings them great joy. And and it does for anyone. If you overcome a, a fear that you have, it's a joyful thing. It makes you really happy. It makes you really proud of yourself. Even if it's, you know, a fear of plugging an electric outlet in, if you overcome that, it makes you feel good about yourself. I, I agree with the fireman thing, but I can say the, I can say the dark side of that because my father's a fireman and he are retired fireman and he, he saved somebody from a burning building and he will, he would honestly state the worst smell besides the dump fires would be the smell of burning flesh. And the, the thing is, while there's that, that hero complex and everything, there's a downside where a lot of firemen end up abusing substances because they don't know how to deal with what the things that they couldn't. Yeah, a lot of firemen have PTSD. Yeah. They don't, because I mean, they've that's, that, that's traumatized. Like, it's the same thing with the military. It's like, yes, you, over, you overcome all these things, but then there's sometimes that we, with our great success, we, there is a, there's a trauma response attached to it if it gets overwhelming. I mean, when you think about somebody that's in Hollywood, we'll, we'll use somebody that's a famous actor, and they start getting accolades and start giving up their privacy at a certain point, that joy that they had with the celebration of what they did is going to be taken away because now they're a prisoner of their fame. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not, uh, and I'm not being negative about it. I'm just saying it sometimes getting past that, we, we have to know that there might be some other thing coming and we can, there still can be repercussions it. for right. sure. There can be. And, and, you know, and whenever, you know, with life, life and limb threatening situations, you know, there are repercussions. I've been hurt a few times and, and I don't bounce back like I once did, <laughs> but no, even I when I was young and I got hurt bad, you know, and I got well, pretty fast. It still, it was, you know, going from a wheelchair to, you know, swimming and running and again was traumatic. Yeah. But I mean, you overcame it. And that's the thing. It's like, I'm not, and I'm not saying that the, the fireman or the actor can't overcome things. They can learn to compensate and, and have a life and live in the moment and have, have a good life. I'm not saying it. Of negatively. course. So you used to, you said, you know, you were a terrible student at one point, you didn't fit in and you weren't ready to go to college. So you dropped out and went to the army. Yeah. I, uh, well, you know, when I was young in school, I actually, uh, my mother was a teacher and, and she gave me the tools to learn to read really, really young. Mm -hmm. And I could actually read quite well when I first went to school and that isolated me somewhat. It made me, you know, what was going on in school was intensely boring because I could already read as well as some adults today, actually, it's kind of <laughs> frightening, um, but <clears throat> it, it also served to kind of isolate me and I never really fit back in. I had friends and, you know, in school and this isn't about, you know, feeling sorry for me because it all worked out great, but I just didn't fit in the school system. Uh, even back then, they didn't do well with anybody who, you know, wasn't in the middle, you know, right. kids that were advanced. There was no place for them. Kids that, you know, were were struggling. There was no place for them. You know, if you if you were right there in that middle, you know, group, there really wasn't a place for you in in in, in the school system. And 
I, I never fit in. I really didn't learn much in school. I sat and read novels. You know, my teachers would, they would try to engage me to a certain extent, but they'd give up because they didn't know what the hell to do with me. And uh, they just let me sit in the corner and read. I'd sit and read novels and stuff. But then after I, uh, and, and I knew that I wasn't ready to go to college, I just didn't have any plan. I don't think any, you know, young people really don't have any way to know what they want to do. Um, it's, it's a little scary to me even now when I see people talk to young, you know, uh, you know, like a high school student in their junior or senior year, and they ask him, so what are you going to do? And what they're really asking him is, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Oh, they're looking at a 16, 17 year old kid and expecting them to have a plan for the next 20 years. It's insane. They have no experience to make those kind of decisions on. And, and most of them will, they'll try to tell you, Oh, I'm going to go to college here and study this. Or I, you know, they're terrified to say, I don't know, but hell I'm 64. I don't know. Well, All I, mean, I know I, is that five years from now, I'm going to have different goals than the ones I have today. And I have lots of goals right now. And, I, but isn't it crazy though? I mean, you I look guess. at it, you know, 17 year old kid and they're supposed to, you know, I'm going to go to college and do this. I'm going to go to this college. I'm going to study this subject. I'm going to do this job. I'm going to get married and have my 2.5 kids. What the heck are we doing? <laughs> but here's the thing. There's some, one of my friends in Texas, her two daughters, this was 10 years ago, I guess when they were entering junior high, she's like, Oh yeah, they're already talking to them about picking out a college. And I'm like, when I was in seventh and eighth grade, I, what? There's no way. There's no way I would even be entertaining going, thinking about what college I wanted to go to. My mom already had it planned out, which I didn't follow, but I wasn't, I mean, like you, I, I graduated high school. I took a year off. I took a year off and I hung out with my friends and I enjoyed well, that's life. Good. Yeah, that's really good because what a great time to just reset and think a little bit. And that's why I joined the army. I knew I wasn't ready to go to college. I hadn't done well in school. I knew that if I had to just go to college, if even if I could find somebody stupid enough to let me in, I'd fail at it because I just wasn't, you know, I mean, I wasn't motivated. Right. So I joined the army and that was a great experience. I learned a lot about myself and what I could do and my priorities changed. And, you know, after I did my two years in the service, I got out and I, and then I went to college and I went there and I don't really think that school was different, but I was different. And I, you know, I got my first degree. I graduated summa cum laude. Mm -hmm. I loved going to school. I did. I challenged all my instructors. I'm sure some of them weren't terribly happy about having me in there because I definitely wasn't a kid anymore. But yeah, uh, yeah, I was I was very engaged and I had a lot of fun and I learned a lot um, and I learned how to you know work within the system. All the classes weren't great, but I had fun going to school and I ended up, ended up today. I have three degrees nice. and I'm constantly learning new things. Learning is fun. It's my great, you know, it's a great joy to learn new things and pick up new skills and change your ideas about stuff. But, you know, when I was 17 years old, I didn't have the slightest idea what I wanted to do at. I can honestly tell you that in my entire lifetime, I've known thousands of people. 
out of all the people I've known, I know one guy, one person in that entire group that knew what they wanted to do when they were about 14, 15 years old. And they did it and they had a career in that field. Everybody else, you change, you adapt. Mm-hmm. You know, you have different careers. I, I mean, as an engineer, I had three or four different disciplines that I went through and passed through. And most of the time I've been self-employed and gone through different business things. And that's more than most people change. But most people do change a few times. And they follow different pathways and they build on what they know. And that allows them to, you know, advance or shift gears. But, you know, I had that one guy, he was, he became a dentist because he liked how my, he liked what my dad did. And he liked my dad's lifestyle. And he became a dentist because of my, you know, knowing me and my my family. And he had a great career as a periodontist and we're still friends, but that's rare. That's incredibly rare that anybody, you know, decides what they're going to do in high school. And that's what they end up doing. Most of us, you know, for lack of any other, you know, other drive, go to college because we can't figure, you know, there's just no, what else do you do? And hopefully while you're there, you figure out to major in something that's going to be useful to you later. Unfortunately, college has changed so much in the last 30 years that that's harder and harder. Just getting a random degree in college doesn't guarantee you anything. It makes you overqualified for many good jobs that you can't. No one wants to hire you for that because now you have a college degree and you're not, you know, you're a bad risk. But I'm going to say, you know, when I was a receptionist at one point, I had a college, a person that had a college degree underneath me. She was my underling. The best was I was a supervisor of a unit. And before I was a unit supervisor, I was just this guy's boss. He had his law degree. He had not got, he had not passed the bar yet, but he had his law degree and I was his supervisor. There was no way that should have ever been possible, but I had more insurance experience than he did. Therefore, well, but I mean, it was, it was like, possible because you were more valuable. I know but your organization <laughs> at that point in time than he was. I know, but it was just one of those things where it was like, you have a law degree. And <laughs> to me, well, it was just funny. It's unfortunate. No, it is. I mean, and it, and it seems funny. I do that, but people don't realize that's, you know, that's really how things work. It's how valuable is your experience? Mm-hmm. Your education helps, but all an education does is gives you a starting point. It doesn't get you a career mm-hmm. that's based on experience. And unfortunately, a lot of people today are really pissed because they go to college and they get a, you know, a degree in something and then there's no work for them or there's no work for them that pays as well as they think they should get paid. And the bottom line is, is they have no value at that point. They have a degree. That's a that all that means is they've you know, they can start at something. They get it. They deserve a chance to see if they can do. Valuable work in that particular field was never supposed to mean anything else. (laughs) No. And I mean, here's the thing. You and I, we have about there's a roughly. You're, you're 64. I'm 54. Yeah. So there's 10 years between us. My my generation was the last generation to have 
people respect them somewhat in the employment industry. We would we would get the the Christmas ham. We would have the nice Christmas party. We would we would have a little extra perks beside the Christmas party that you would get. Oh, Thanksgiving, we'll give you guys a turkey to to take home. You know, we'll do these little extra things. I worked in the hospitality industry when I got this, but nowadays, no, you're lucky you have a job. That started changing in the workforce. That you're lucky yep. you have a job. We don't care. You're a hamster on a wheel. You're replaceable. Goodbye. We don't care how we treat you. Oh, you. we need you to close files. So guess what? We're going to give you a pizza party. Okay, but I'm salary. So really, you're now, ch- you're now making me work overtime and taking my salary down because for pizza? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's true. It's really true. And it's, you know, it's getting tougher and tougher. I think that it's it's kind of interesting that a lot of people haven't quite figured out yet that um, we're not as wealthy as a country as we once were. There isn't as much there isn't there is not as much to go around. And that's the cause of a lot of this, you know, difficulty in employment and stuff like that, because we don't have I mean, when I was graduating from high school. I I was out. I lived just outside of Detroit and there were, there were guys that, you know, at that age that were starting out and they would go work in the, in the auto factories and make 35 bucks an hour pushing a broom. This is in 1975. Yeah. That's the equivalent of a hundred dollars an hour today. Yeah. And all those jobs are gone. Right. You know, we, we don't pay people ridiculous amounts of money to do nothing. You can make good money, but you're going to have to make yourself really valuable to make really good money. If you're just going to going to be a cog in a wheel, you're not going to you're going to basically exist just above the poverty level. Well, and that's the thing. It's like we used to have the respect of, you know, dare I say that the commercial of look for the union label. We used to have we used to manufacture things here. You know, the Maytag repairman. Oh, look how lonely he is because he makes something and it stays and it keeps working. And now we have right. such, we have such a throw. I mean, I hate to say it, but really, overall, we have a throwaway society because we don't right. value the employee. We don't value the stuff we get. Well, oh, I got it out the box. It worked for a minute, and now it's broke. Right. I mean, yeah, it's junk. Appliances last five years. Yeah, and everybody is kind of a throwaway person. We don't even even in our personal relationships, marriages. You know. It used to be very taboo in the 70s. It started kicking up. But in the 70s, my, I mean, my mom and dad, when they split, it was kind of like, what happened? This is not normal. And so, you know, that was not something that was normal yet. Hit the 80s? Well, yeah, everybody's done it. Yeah. But nobody wants to do the work to make it real, to make it last. Yeah, it's, uh, we don't, we don't manufacture much here. I mean that, you know, we won World War Two because we were the we out, you know, we were we over industrialized. We out manufactured the Germans and, and the Japanese. That's how we won that war. It wasn't because we were braver and we had more soldiers. We didn't. But all the soldiers we sent out were so much better armed and had so much better equipment and resources. We overran them. And, you know, and and the fantastic wealth of the middle class 
in the 50s and 60s was all about our manufacturing. All American goods were treasured throughout the world. Now, what do we make? Games? I mean, we're not not manufacturing things any better than anybody else. We're struggling to keep up. Our cars are, well, for a while they were junk, but now they're about as good as, you know, they're, they're almost as good as the Japanese cars. They're a little better than some of the other cars. I mean, we're, you know, we're not the best by any wild stretch of the imagination. And, you know, this is having an effect on the opportunities that young people have. Mm-hmm. And it's tough. I worry about what my kids are going to get. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there was an other than somebody getting a divorce. Most of the time you would see mom, dad, have a kid, kid goes, grows up, gets married, goes to college, whatever, moves out the house. They're not coming back unless there's a divorce. They're on their own. But now you see more families moving in together because they can't afford to live any other way. Uh Oh, you froze. Hurting might be, uh, there might be some issue because I'm hearing an echo. I just got a, a, a sign saying that my internet connection was unstable. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. You froze for a second. Oh, okay. Well, well, what, I, what I had said was, because we can, I'll edit that out. What I said was that, you know, before you used to be able to watch, you know, somebody get married, your kid would get married, they'd go off, everything would be fine. And now, and go to college and whatever and have their life. And they would only come back if there was a divorce or something of that nature. But now parents and kids are moving back or kids are moving back in with their parents because they can't afford to live. Right. Yeah. There's, it's, it's not uncommon. Single kids in their thirties and, and, and older are living with their parents. I mean, my first apartment when I moved to Dallas and granted, this is 1989 was I believe two seventy five a month. And that's that that's well, it seems a lot based on that economy. It still wasn't that much. It really wasn't. But now find an apartment that cheap. No way. There's not going to be. It's not a possibility. A studio here in a small town is eight hundred and fifty dollars. Yep. Yeah, that's about the same here in, in in the Portland area. I mean, basically, if you're renting any kind of an apartment, it's going to be closer to fifteen hundred to two thousand. And. That's a lot. That's a lot of money. And who's got who's got that kind of money? I mean, when and then you have to also look at the the older generations, because as they retire, is their Social Security going to be that high enough to pay? I mean, I it's don't a believe, joke. Yeah, <laughs> I don't believe it is. I don't believe. Yeah, it the is. math doesn't work on Social Security. There's fewer and fewer pay, people paying into it. And they've they've attached all kinds of things to Social Security that were never supposed to be part of it. And it's not like they're taking money from, you know, it's not like they invested the money as it's coming in. It's based on a constant flow and it's not there. We don't have the, the you know, the workforce is, is shrinking. And you, you have an income cap on the wealthy, the super wealthy, that they're only going to pay a small amount. And there's so many other ways we could bring things in to make are, I don't want to get a political conversation, but there's so many ways we can make things better to make this have a, a strong economy. 
And that, that's something interesting back to that. Book. We can definitely do better. We can right. always do better. There was something interesting in that book. He was talking about the power of belief and how it's used with propaganda and war and how it's also used with the, the economy. How back when the stock market crashed in the 1920s, you know, people were OK with it. But then they started putting out news stories like, oh, the market's so terrible. And so everybody started buying into that fear factor. And so the fear, it became more of a. Uh, hive mind. That's not his words. So that's mine. But a collective mindset, and therefore that fear becomes more universal, which then magnifies. Yep. So people jumping out of windows, and mm-hmm. you know everybody's convinced there's no work, so they don't look. Right. Right. Because well, they really- don't try to create something for themselves. It's it's funny. I guess part of part of my attitude about everything is is definitely genetic my grandmother uh when the when the uh stock market crashed during the 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 great depression she was about uh 16 years old she went out and got a job as a mathematician she didn't really she had graduated from high school but she didn't have any particular knowledge of math and this is before the age of computers she went home and taught herself calculus so she could do her job (laughs) Nice. Nice. Isn't she, were, of, she was the only one in the family working for a while as a mathematician. Wow. Is that kind of an oxymoron, though? The Great Depression? I mean, yeah. Oh, it's definitely an oxymoron. What's great about this? Exactly. Exactly. So what do you how did you get past your fear? I mean, how do you keep it in check? I mean, there's got to be days where it starts creeping up. And how do you talk yourself out of it? Well, I, uh, every time, every decision that I make, I'm faced with a bunch of variables and I will look at all of that stuff and, you know, some of it's negative, but when I, when I, when I reach a decision that I'm going to move forward with something, I stop at that point, I absolutely stop second guessing myself. I just don't think about it anymore. All I think about is what's in front of me. What do I have to do to accomplish this goal? I, I just don't even look at anything that could, that could detract from that. If things go wrong along the way, as they always do, I deal with them as I, as they come up, but I don't sit around and think about it. I don't waste any, any more of my life's energy thinking about why I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't help. I've already made the decision to move forward. And that's what I focus all my attention on. So it doesn't really being afraid at that point just doesn't enter into my consciousness. It's behind me. I'm afraid about things when I'm thinking about doing them. Once I've decided to do them, I don't have time for fear. I don't think about it. It's behind me. Well, then I have to ask you this. Do you, are you one of those people that when you decide to do something, you keep it to yourself because you don't want to listen to anybody else's negative chatter? Uh, no, I, I'm not. I, I, I'll, I'll tell other people, but once I've decided to do something, I'm not, you know, I'll tell people to do it just because I want to tell them what I'm up to, uh, but not because I'm going to entertain any you know, any, any more thoughts about why I shouldn't be doing it. And everybody who knows me, wouldn't bother to go there anyway. Because <laughs> I mean, that that's something, you know, when you say something like I'm going to do this, somebody's like, oh, but you know, you shouldn't, you could do this could happen or that could happen. 
Just yep, good. <laughs> just stop. yeah, I don't listen. I'll listen to naysayers when I'm when I'm planning and I'm trying to decide something. And you should. You have to think about whether mm-hmm. or not you know you, every obstacle that you you know that comes in your path, every change in your direction that you choose to take or that you're entertaining, you need to, you know, do your research. And part of that is asking people who know you uh, what their opinion is about what you're, you're planning on doing or, you know, what it is that you're facing. And you should do that. Um, but once you've decided to, to move past that point, it's pointless to listen to, to that. It really is. You're really detracting from your, your own performance by entertaining any, you know, any, negativity. It doesn't help you accomplish your goal at that point. And once you've crossed that line and you're committed to what you're doing, you need to think about that and not, not waste your time on, you know, the people want to say, don't do this because you're already doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, it, it also detracts the energy process of it too. It kills your, it kills yeah. your, your, your life force to move forward. You know, if you're thinking about that, you're not, you know, it's, it's negative and it's, you're holding yourself back. It isn't that you you have to be impolite to people that are, you know, they're, they're telling you what they think, but there's, we all have friends like this, that it's all negativity. It's weird. I have my mother's like that. Everything's, everything's bad news. I mean, everything that comes out of her mouth is bad news and she's most happy when she's miserable. And I don't, personally understand people like this. I've had a couple of good friends who are like that, but everything, you know, the, the, the glass is half full. It's, you know, or half empty. It's, you know, everything's bad news. Everything's, you know, all the negativity about anything that they're going to do. And, but that's just how they are. And I don't understand them. I don't want to live in that, that headspace myself. I want to live in a headspace where everything's going to work out. Sometimes it doesn't, but I haven't, I haven't let all that, you know, if I get to a point where something doesn't work out for me, all the, the time and energy that has got me to that point has been positive. And I haven't, you know, been, you know, surrounded with all that negative energy until, you know, it went south for me. And then I have to just deal with it. It's kind of like the, the old saying, uh, you know, uh, a, uh, a coward dies a thousand deaths, a brave man dies but one. And that's kind of an extreme thought. And everything you do doesn't necessarily involve tremendous courage, but it kind of does. Anything that you're doing that involves risk, there's a chance you're going to fail. But if you think about that failure all the time, you're surrounded with negativity through the whole process. There's no way you can operate at your best level and have the best outcome. And even if you, if you're optimistic the whole time and it fails at the end, well, but you had all the joy from all that optimism leading up to it. And, you know, being negative wouldn't have helped, you know, defeat the, the negative outcome at the end. There's, there's no chance of that. It's only going to hold you back. There was, there was once a friend who she had a dream back in 1995. So this is how old the statement is. And it was somebody that I knew came to her in this dream and told her there are no memories without the risk. 
And there was something very profound in that statement when she told me about it. I was just like, okay. And it's true that if, if you sit there and most of my friends think, well, they're like, you're a risk taker. I'm like, mm, they said, you're a calculated risk taker. I'm like, well, okay, I'll give you that one. But it's true. If you don't take the risk, you don't know what you're missing out on. You may miss out on something spectacular. So you have to take that risk. And Absolutely. if you fall on your face, you know, because for me, my mother would be a great proponent to sit there one minute and say, one day you're going to fall flat on your face. I hope I'm there to see it. And then the next minute tell me I can do anything I put my mind to. So I remember being in my thirties and asking my dad, dad, so are you proud of me? He's like, what does it matter? And I'm like, what do you mean? What does it matter? He's like, I said, it just matters. He goes, why? I said, well, because I want to know if you're proud of me. He goes, it doesn't matter. In fact, all you need, the only person that needs to be proud of you is you. You need to own yourself. I said, but what happens if I fall on my face? He goes, then you get up and dust yourself off and you keep going. There's no reason for me to be proud or upset with you or anything. You're living your life. And if you're happy, that's all that matters. Which is the total opposite of what my mother would have said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can agree with that, but I don't know. I think I I always wanted to earn my father's respect. I never (laughs) stopped wanting to earn my father's respect. And I was very happy to know unequivocally that I had earned it. I was, you know, when I was young, I didn't think that I was worthy of his respect. And, and it made me an unhappy kid. Uh, that was tough to deal with as a child. I really didn't feel like I, I lived up to my, you know, the example that both my parents said. They never said anything negative towards me, but they were both so accomplished. I just felt like I could never live up to that, you know, that that mirror. Uh, I think I have, but uh, I'm sure they'd be proud of you. <laughs> but but I but part of what helped me accomplish the things that I have accomplished is constantly wanting to be better, to know that, you know, I'm on a path of, you know, a never ending path of self-improvement. And, and a lot of that has to do with the example that my parents set for me. They were always learning new things and trying to be better at whatever they were doing. And uh, that's, you know, that's the example that I had before me. It was a little uh, overwhelming as a child, but that's life. Well, I think, you know, our parents, our parents are great at, at teaching us things, whether it's in the awkward lesson that my mother would give me. And, I, and to say, to be fair to my dad, my dad did tell me he was proud of me. The, when I got married to my second husband, he gave me away, which I wasn't expecting. And then when we were doing the father daughter dance, he, he came out and said, I'm, you know, I love you. And I'm so proud of you, the woman you've become. So I did earn his respect. And I didn't have to ask him again for it. He just gave it. But our parents teach us and they form who we are. And it's up to us to either better ourselves or let their ideals trap us. You know, absolutely. So you are a motivational speaker and I know your motivational speaking has to be all about getting past your fear. Yeah, it's it's about well, my my core message is to, you know, is to take a leap of faith, take a leap of faith in yourself and, you know, and and move past your fear so that you can perform at your highest level with with joy and confidence. 
And uh, I try to use my own life experiences to illustrate the lessons that I've learned that helped me figure out how to do this. I was fortunate enough to learn at a very young age that the only thing that really matters to me is to, is to have challenge to face and to uh, have things that, you know, that I want to constantly become better at. That's what skydiving brought to me. Uh, the Army, a little bit, a little bit uh, as well. I, I was proud of being a good aircraft mechanic and, you know, and having responsibility. And then but the the overcoming the, the fear of skydiving and continuing with that, wanting to be the best at that that I could be. Um, was transformational for myself. And, and it kind of set the pattern for the rest of my life and still sets the pattern to this day. I still want to be better at everything that I do. And I still look for new, new challenges. And it isn't about the ultimate goal. It isn't like, well, when I get to this point, it's, you know, I will have reached that goal. Um, for me, when I, when I, like if I ever get as good as I can at something, I start looking for something else. I can't sit. I can't be static. I cannot remain static in any position. Um, that's boring to me. It's about striving. It's about clawing my way forward to become better at anything. That's what brings my joy. That's what life is all about for me. And I think it is maybe to a more, sedate level for most people. You know, if you can find joy in, you know, getting better at what you do, uh, it's, it's fun and, and it makes your whole life better. And sometimes that's hard to do. You know, if you're stuck in a job that you don't like and, but you can't, you know, financially, you can't make that decision to just quit and move into something else. You have to find you know, satisfaction in doing what you do well. And if you can, if you can find satisfaction in, you know, in a job well done and really do the best you can both at work and at home and, you know, throughout your life, things will get better. You will get opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise get. If you just plod along and do the least, you know, the, you know, the lowest common denominator, if you just just do what, you know, whatever it is that you need to do to get by, you're trapped for life. You'll never, there's no way out of that. You can't advance to some better position or better situation. You know, there's not, you're not going to have the opportunities that you would have if your whole, your, your life energy were about improvement and moving forward and finding satisfaction in, you know, working hard and having, you know, joy in doing something well. Well, that's the thing about, you know, when I look at my last job, it was soul sucking. It was truly soul sucking as, as an insurance supervisor, it was a soul sucking job. And, but the thing is like you, I started out in mail file. I, and the reason why I said like you, because I strived to get to a better position. And so I went from mail file to receptionist. And when I asked this guy who worked at the office, I said, how can I become a claims adjuster? Oh, well, you need to go to college for that. You need to do do, 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 do. I'm like, okay. I didn't go to college all the way. I dropped out twice. 
which really is sad, I know, but I did. But here's the thing. I made it to a claims adjuster and then I made it to a claims adjuster two and the claims adjuster three and then the team leader and the claims supervisor. And then once I got there, after a certain point, it got to be a little much. (laughs) And then I knew because the stress level wasn't for me that I had to get out of it. And that's the thing. I don't, you have to realize at a certain point that yes, once you achieve that, if you realize it's not the right thing, you need to find an exit strategy. Right. But you can, you can make a lateral move Mm -hmm. from a higher position, Mm -hmm. but you can't make a lateral move from the bottom. No, you just, you just don't have any opportunity and nobody wants to give you opportunities. If your energy is in the toilet, you know, if you hate, you know, if, if it's just, you exude nothing but negativity, nobody wants you. Nobody wants that. You know, nobody's looking for that. Not in any capacity. No. I once had a, uh, well, I spent about 10 years of my life working as a commercial photographer, which is a little odd. Uh, and I was uh, extremely successful. And the, the money was, you know, it was, it was a, a trap. It, it was boring as shit. You know, it, it required, you know, this was something that, you know, once I had it figured out, required me to use about, 25% of my capacity. Um, the business end of it was interesting, but the rest of it, it just wasn't that hard for me. Um, and eventually I walked away and went back to my engineering roots where, where I belong because it's just something that is more natural to me. And it's has more to do with the way my, my brain works and it's more challenging to me on a daily basis. Working for a paycheck is the worst thing you can do for yourself. It it really is. You can't just work. If you're not getting some kind of intrinsic reward from what you do for a living, you're living in hell. That's, that's the worst possible situation. And you have to have, you got to come up with a better plan because that's, that's, you're going to do more work than anything else in life. If you can't find a way to make that joyful, your life is in the toilet. You have to find a better way. There is always a better way. Oh, yeah. And I remember when I was first a claims adjuster, uh, we had this one computer that was like set away from everybody that you could use for personal use. And I remember taking my floppy disk and going in there and putting in there and writing during my whole lunch hour. And everybody would be like, where did you go disappear to? I'm like, I went to go write. And when I would come home from work, I would write. Because that's what that's where my passion was. That would take them. And granted, as an adjuster, I liked the job because I got to investigate things. But I needed a creativity as well. And that's the thing. That's where my that's where the job became bearable because I would take that break and go go do something creative. So there was my joy and my passion. And then I'd go back and deal with some really gruesome stuff sometimes. But you have to find your passion. You have to find a balance. Otherwise it is going to turn into just something soul sucking. And going back to being the claims adjuster, when I would pick my husband up from the, the train station, I would start in at four 30 complaining about my job until we went to bed at 10 o'clock. That's how bad the stress was. But yeah, that's like, you, like you that's, said, that's there's that, horrible. There's that money trap. Well, and then I started playing San Andreas, the, 
the Grand Theft Auto game, driving around shooting up things to relieve stress, which isn't really healthy either. And as soon as I was done with the job, I have never played that game again. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's an interesting stress reliever. <laughs> It was not a healthy stress reliever. I, I mean, granted, I like to drive around because it had some really cool tunes, but, you know, there was other aspects of the game that were really dark, and it's not that I wanted to do that to anybody. It was just, you know, it was a way to get the stress out. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Your husband must be a saint. He was. He was. He was <laughs> a saint. He was a saint. He would constantly tell me, you need to get out of that job. But there's other people that, being a claim supervisor, it's not that stressful. It's just a matter of who you are at your core. And if you're doing something you're passionate about, then you're not as stressed. You're not so wrapped up in it. But yeah. My somewhere. wife, my wife is a, is a, uh, insurance, uh, disability insurance, uh, analyst. Okay. And she's been doing it for quite a while. And, it's kind of a love hate thing. She likes the fact that she's worked from home for 15 years. Um, and she likes that. And it's, you know, it's easy for her, but it's depressing too. you know, people game in the system to, cause they don't, there's nothing really wrong with them. And they just don't want to go back to work. I couldn't stand it. I'd freak out. I, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with one of those people. <laughs> she has to deal with them all the time. <laughs> I mean, that that's the thing. When I was looking at going back to working in insurance recently, I was looking at, you know, Indeed, and I'm looking at the money that's there. And I'm just looking at the job posting and I feel my shoulders tense up and I feel my just all my anxiety start to build. I'm like, you know, it it really is great money, but. It's, it's just funny. It. As one per, as one of my employees told me, because I had gotten pneumonia and I came back to work too soon. And he comes in my office like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I got to They called me in. I have to do this. And he looks at me and he goes, no job is worth your health. And that was like the most profound statement I have ever heard in my life, because it's true. No job is worth your health. But we are nope. taught that it is that money and your job are the end all be all. Mm. Yeah, I guess I wasn't really taught that. <laughs> Well, I really wasn't. That's working, not what my parents thought. Paycheck to paycheck. Oh, I've worked pay, paycheck to paycheck, and I've gone broke a couple of times. I've needed, you know, I've, I've, I've felt real despair about not having enough money. But I've never, I've never taken a job just because I. Not I've never taken a job just for the money. I've always, uh, wanted it for whatever reason. Even when I was a kid, I quit a job once to that. I remember I had a job as a bus boy and I quit the job to work at another job that paid a little less, but I had more autonomy and uh, I could get more hours so I could work more hours and make the same money, but I had more independence. And that was so much more attractive to me than just the amount of money I was making. Yeah. And that's the thing. If, if you can detach yourself from the, the money aspect of it and find something that you truly want to do, then, then your life is a little bit better, a lot better, actually. 
it's best if you can, if you're lucky enough to find something you really like doing that pays, you know, that you can make money at. That's what, you, you know, that's what everybody should do. Mm-hmm. But we're not in a perfect world yet. No. And I mean, any job there's, you know, there's things about it. You don't like there's, you know, if you, if you really enjoy 20% of any job, you're doing pretty well, mm-hmm. you know, and the rest of it is you tolerate the things that you really dislike and you just kind of move through the things that are neutral. Well, let's and, be honest. Part of the, part of the, part of going to work, some things that happened during high school are still the same <laughs> at offices. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I'd look forward to going into an office. I've been yeah. too independent for too long. Offices have a little bit of click sometimes, and it's just like, okay, here we are back in high school all over again. So, yeah. So, if you could tell anybody a parting word, what would you tell them? That uh, you can really accomplish a lot more than you think you're capable of. You just have to take a leap of faith in yourself. You have, if you're going to decide to do something, decide to do it, take a chance and just, you know, don't, you know, when you make that, once you make that decision, stop looking back. Once you've decided to do something, consider it done that you're done with that decision-making process and all you do is look forward, keep moving forward and, and try to find a way to believe in yourself. And if you need a little push in that direction, I recommend you read my book, leap forward, which is available on Amazon and, and as an audible on audible.com or Amazon as an audible book. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I thank you, Scott, for coming on. It's been fun. Thanks. It's been great talking to you. So I find it fascinating that, you know, we have to let go of the fear. That is one of the big things that a lot of us hold on to. And we're taught to fear. We're taught to, if you make that choice, what happens if it goes wrong? And I mean, myself included, I'm not going to sit there and say I'm perfect and it's never happened to me, but we do sometimes feed into fear. So now, All of us need to try to step back and go, you know what? I need to try this. It may not end up being perfect, but I need to try this. I need to try and do it. And that's all any of us can do is have hope that we're on the right path, that we're walking that path and whatever obstacles come up, deal with them and keep going. You know, sometimes we think we can't do something and it turns out that we actually can. So I'm going to keep it short and sweet today. Um, if you want to be a guest on the show or you want to leave a question, comment, or concern, you can do so by sending an email to Donna, D-A-U-N-A at better2podcast.com. That's Donna at better2podcast.com. If you want to catch up on the show, you can do so at better2podcast.com or any of your podcast sites that you may listen to. Also on better2podcast.com, you can find our social links. As always, the show is presented to you by Kitty Mystic and DM Needham. And our sound is done by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio. So I hope you enjoyed the show. And whenever you're listening, whether it be evening, morning, or the weekend, I hope you have a great day. Take care, guys. Bye.
Better Two podcast is mixed, edited, and produced by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio Productions. 